From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is episode one of the Share Profits Radio Show, our new weekly podcast. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Welcome to the first edition of Share Profits Radio, our weekly podcast. Normally, these podcasts will be about an hour in length, and we'll have two guests on the show. This week, as it is our inaugural edition, we have three guests on the show, and the podcast will last for two hours. Enjoy every minute of it. Uh, Those three guests are Nigel Somerville, uh, my colleague at Share Profits, and the guru of all things, Neil Woodford. And we will be discussing the disgraced fund manager, what went wrong, and what happens next. Then there's Andrew Monk, the chief executive of VSA Capital, one of the few brokers in the city who is prepared to call a spade a spade. Uh, We'll be discussing some disasters, Thomas Cook, Sound Energy, where they go from here. Uh, And we'll be discussing some opportunities in the resource sector. But we'll also uh, be discussing Vietnam. It's not April the 1st. Uh, Andrew Monk is serious. This is the hot place to invest and how to go about it. Finally, there is Steve O'Hara, who is the CEO of Optibiotics. I own shares in Optibiotics. I'm upfront about that. But I think I gave Steve a pretty hard time. Uh, judge for yourself. On this podcast, uh, CEOs don't pay to appear. Uh, we take no payment from them. I just invite CEOs who interest me and whose companies interest me. Uh, if you want to listen to a CEO being asked whether his favorite biscuit is a chocolate hobnob uh, or a Jaffa cake uh, and uh, how long his penis is and why his shares are so cheap, uh, go over to Vox Markets where CEOs pay to be asked such difficult questions. So this is free. CEOs don't pay. Uh, Why am I doing this? So I like the sound of my own voice, rather croaky at the moment. Uh, Well, maybe. Uh, But no, I'm I'm not a charity. Uh, This podcast is sponsored. Our sponsor today is Riverfort Capital. Uh, Riverfort Capital, uh, Riverfort Global Capital, which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies uh, on the AIM market. Uh, it provides, uh, what it would term, structured finance, what you might rather rudely call a death spiral. But as I have made the point time and time again in my regular bear casts on share profits, not all structured finance products are the same. There are some really very ugly ones out there. We've seen the recent case with Anglo-African oil and gas, where the company's shareholders were completely raped by an unscrupulous provider. Uh, thanks to pressure from myself, uh, the company's been forced to drop that provider of structured finance and has actually, I believe, uh, gone for a new facility with Riverfort. Uh, That new facility will save shareholders in uh, Anglo-African round about a million quid. Riverfort provides equity and debt funding for a range of purposes, uh, specifically tailored to a company's needs, including acquisition finance, working capital, bridging to cash flow events, and augmenting placings. Funding instruments include short, medium-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty, and equity financings. Funding can, I'm told, be provided quickly and is independent of general market conditions. During the summer, Riverfort will be hosting a series of masterclasses both online 
online and in person to help company directors understand how to access and optimize their funding for companies. Well, they can't truly be masterclasses because I'm not giving them, but they're as close as cutting damn it to masterclasses. If you want more information, if you're a CEO who'd like to discover more, uh, email info at riverfortcapital.com for more information. Anyhow, thank you to Riverfort for sponsoring uh, this podcast. Before we go to the first interview, uh, I wonder if the greatest investment opportunity at the moment is to go against the herd on cannabis. You kind of know that cannabis is the new hot promote, the pump, uh, where the ramping and wild speculation is uh, at when you see that David Lenigas is at the forefront of promoting not one, but two distinct cannabis plays. Uh, one is a Canadian company whose name I've forgotten, but which used to be Lenigas Cake Cuba. It failed in that venture. The other is Afriag on the next lobster pot. Uh, which, of course, was set up by tobacco smugglers to be an, an, an agricultural play, but is now a cannabis play. When people like uh, that get involved, you know that there's something quite wrong. My argument against cannabis uh, and investing in cannabis has not been an ethical one, although I am increasingly uh, drawn to the opinions of people like Peter Hitchens, who point to the severe psychological damage which a lot of cannabis smokers suffer uh, and have grave reservations about the decriminalization of cannabis in various territories. The cannabis story is not just about decriminalization, of course, it is also about using it as a medicinal product. It can, in forms which don't apparently put you on a high, it can dull pain, it can cure certain ailments. So it is seen as the big opportunity. The problem is, it's essentially just uh, agriculture. It is a commodity product. Uh, it's not called weed for nothing. It grows in fields. It is very easy to produce cannabis on an industrial scale. And over the past few months, or a year or so, vast amounts of capital has been thrown at new companies which are seeking to simply grow cannabis. Other companies are seeking to utilize those cannabis for medicinal purposes. Well, that brings you in another complication. You've got all the problems of being regulated, all the problems of getting approvals, and ultimately you've got a product which is just a bulk commodity. There's no suggestion that any of the companies which are uh, looking for medicinal applications for cannabis will somehow get the holy grail, which will be a new Zantac, a new buster product, uh, tackling a chronic ailment in a unique way. Ultimately, there will be a number of cannabis applications for various uh, ailments. They will have to go through enormous regulatory processes, and of course, that is hugely expensive. The real problem here is just that so much capital has been thrown at the sector. Ultimately, if you're producing cannabis as a recreational product, you are just producing another commodity. You might as well invest in a celery uh, producer or a farm producing lettuces uh, or corn or radishes. Cannabis is just a commodity. 
uh, you have a, another problem as well, of course, is that as oversupply is coming into the market and is starting to really, really conk the market, uh, if you are selling cannabis as a legal product, uh, you may be undercut by people who've not gone through the regulatory process and are just peddling weed as a drug. They will undercut you. There was some data out from Canada, uh, which I was uh, looking at the other day, and it looked at the demand for cannabis over the past 12 months. And it's risen a little bit since legalization, but not dramatically. It's gone up a little bit. But then you look at the supply, and the supply both of cannabis as uh, oil, or cannabis as whatever tobacco type substitute, uh, uh, other forms of cannabis. The supply are multiples of the demand. Uh, what's the exact data? Uh, I can get the exact data up here. Uh, it is an absolute multiple. Uh, and that is simply because so much capital has been thrown at the sector. Uh, Currently, there are now 24 months of supply of dried cannabis and 15 months of supply of cannabis oil in Canada. Canada is one of the most advanced markets because it decriminalized early and ahead of everybody else. And that's why an enormous amount of capital was thrown at Canada over the past two or three years. But as this decriminalization phase goes through America and through other Western economies, exactly the same pattern is repeating. Therefore, you have massive oversupply uh, in the markets, and that can only mean that prices crash. I suspect you're going to find that many cannabis producers, uh, in the face of collapsing prices, will be unable to generate any economic return at all. They will be loss-making. They will be forced out of business. The others will make a pitiful return on capital. Lucian Myers suggested that the way to play this, obviously, don't buy your shares in any David Lenigas cannabis promote, don't buy shares in any cannabis company per se. The smart way to play it is to look at the cannabis index, which is something you can short over on IG uh, and which you should be short of. This is a bubble waiting to burst. Now, talking of burning other people's money, uh, it's time to talk about Neil Woodford and uh, uh, with Nigel Somerville. Nigel Somerville uh, joined uh, uh, Share Profits as a writer some time ago. Like many of the Share Profits writers, he's not a professional journalist. He is, in fact, a music teacher. Uh, his initial specialist subject was a company called Turn. Uh, it was run by a gentleman called Angus Forrest. Uh, Nigel exposed all sorts of stuff about Turn, as did I. Uh, Angus Forrest reported us to the police for harassment. Uh, the police uh, told Mr. Forrest to go sling his hook, uh, and we carried on exposing the company. Turn shares today traded about 10 or 11p. It has a net asset value of 5p, and it's invested in a whole load of crap companies which burn cash. Eventually, they will run out of money. The premium to net asset value is not justifiable. But it's not the real scandal, uh, which Nigel has been working on hard. That is Neil Woodford. Now, Nigel. And there are two schools of thought on Britain's greatest ever fund manager. Um, one is uh, the thought of e Evil Knievel um, and that twit Justin Urquhart Stewart uh, of Seven Investment Management, which is that he's a totally fine fellow 
friend of David Cameron, a pucker individual, and a genius, and he's just got a little bit unlucky. The other school of thought, as espoused by you and me, is that he's engaged in some appallingly dodgy transactions, which have made him a lot of money in management fees, uh, but uh, which cannot be justified. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think the likes of Evil Knievel have a point that... Um, He's a fine fellow and he's a friend of David Cameron's. Yeah, he might be a... Well, yes. I I dined in with him at a few weeks ago. Fine fellow. Um, He he might... I mean, you know, the the point is that, you know, he has a multi, multi multi-decade track record of being an investment genius. And I think... um, What's more of interest there is what changed. What? Why is he no longer an investment an investment genius? Um, well, he invested in rubbish companies, isn't? It? I mean, we 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 could we could categorise. I, I would have thought his investments into three categories. Okay, there have been some companies which were good, which he invested in. We shouldn't take that away from him. Not everything he he touched uh, turned uh, to the opposite of gold. Um, but there will be three things which we could haul him up. Investing in companies which patently were there were problems and where he thought he knew better than the market and he and carried, and carried on investing more and more of his investors' money in them when yeah, it was obvious. Yeah. And so uh, um, amassing a prize collection of, of falling knives. The second one would be investing in companies which clearly had ludicrous business plans. Uh, and the third would be ones where there are issues of valuation and that's where... Woodford really has been a very naughty boy. Would that be fair? Yes. I think, um, the, I mean, I think the, the thing is that the, the bad investments have, have led to this scandal starting to seep out. Um, if, the, if the bad investments hadn't been so bad, he wouldn't have had a, a cash flow crisis at his equity income fund, and people wouldn't probably be looking very much under the bonnet, well, apart from us. We, of course, have been looking under the bonnet since I think the first article on share profits uh, calling out Woodford was in 2015. Yeah. Uh, since uh, uh, late 2016, we've done more than 800 articles on him. Yes. Uh, unlike yes. the uh, Deadwood Press, which uh, were busy uh, giving him uh, blowjob write-ups for uh, uh, until really very, very recently, and are now yeah. pretending that they knew all along. Yes. Um, yeah. um, it, it is quite extraordinary, the, the about face that's gone on. Um, I think the best one was the Mail on Sunday, which was the day before the equity income fund got gated, uh, ran a piece saying, oh, yeah, he's got a few problems, but uh, still on balance, you know, we should give him the benefit of the doubt. 24 hours before the fund is gated. Yes. Uh, yes. And now for the Mail on Sunday to say, oh, well, you know, Woodford's got a, a bit of a rotter and his press officer doesn't return our phone calls and all this sort of thing uh, is, uh, is a bit weak, isn't it? Yes, it, it's very poor. And I, I think the, the worst of it is that, I mean, Woodward, Woodford's problems were, were obvious to us two years ago. And since then, we've just had a stream of, of these problems finally surfacing. And um, we've had companies like that ludicrous uh, revolutionary pallets business, RM2, having to refinance and refinance again and refinance again. Um, and... You know, it was all fairly obvious right at the beginning that that's what was going to happen. And um, and now there's no money left at Woodford to refinance it, and um, it's currently suspended because it can't put its accounts out. 
And the reason yeah, we can't the problem, put it the, account, problem, the problem with companies like RM2 uh, was a problem that sunk Halo Source uh, and will sink Xeros Group and, and Eve Group is that when the problems emerged, the only person who was prepared to fund them was Neil Woodford, and he ends up with a stake of 70% in the business. And that means that when they come for another funding, no one's going to invest. Because you've Correct. got this mammoth stock overhang and there's no other institution involved. Yes, um, but you've also got issues about the valuation. I mean, um, we had just recently the, a placing by, um, was it Versium? Um, yeah which ran out of money and needed $10 million um, pretty damn quick. So Neil Woodford stepped up with £7.5 out of a £7.7 .7 million placing. Um, the shares were about 70p at the time, but the placing was done at a pound something. And you just, you just have to ask yourself, you know, why? Well, why is fairly simple. Had Woodford gone to them and said, look, I'm the only game in town. I'm not going to do it at a quid. I'm not going to do it at a premium. I'm going to do it at 10p, take it or leave it. They would have taken it because yeah, there was no alternative. But had he had done that, he would have had to write down the value of his previous investments dramatically. Right. Instead, right. by trying to spoof the market, he was able to give a temporary uplift, which meant more management fees for Neil Woodford. But it was totally artificial, and he was wasting investors' money unnecessarily. Yes, that, that's, I think that's absolutely correct. And um, it, oh, we mentioned RM2 there. Let's go to this category. This is the category of the absolutely daft business plans. RM2, hat tip I think we should give here to Graham Neary, who called this out first. RM2 is the company which uh, was going to disrupt the world of wooden pallets. Now, I yeah. have wooden pallets here in my farmyard, and if someone steals them, I can just go and buy another one for five quid. The theory of RM2 is that uh, I would not buy a wooden pallet for five quid, but I'd buy one of their revolutionary plastic pallets with an embedded microchip for 60 quid. And if someone went to steal it, then I would be able to track it down and go and confront the uh, Albanian gangster responsible with his machine gun and get it back. Uh, and it's clearly an absolutely ludicrous proposition. If someone steals something which is pretty much worthless, i.e. a wooden pallet, you just go and buy another one. Yes. For five quid. You have to have an awful lot of worthless pallets stolen, which doesn't happen in the real world, in order to justify your uh, the 60 quid investment. It was obviously, if you just thought it through, it was crackers. Well, it was. I mean... Well, I mean, one can see um, a benefit for being able to track a pallet, for example, of um, iPhones. Um, you'd, quite want, you'd quite like to want to know where it's disappeared to. But as a general thing, I mean, you're not going to get your local delivery of bricks um, done on a, a trackable pallet. And if you have a pallet of iPhones, you can put an embedded chip within one of the iPhones to track well, it, it. Well, ex exactly. And so there was no need for this pallet. Um, and then, I mean, they had all sorts of silly problems as well. I mean, I gather there was one batch of pallets had to be sent back because they used the wrong sort of paint and all the stuff slipped off it. <laughs> so it, it was not only a daft idea, it was a badly managed company. Now, we yes. can accept that, you know, you and I are both invested in companies which say they're going to do something brilliant, and then we realise, actually, they're just going to run out of money. Um, but Woodford's problem was that it must have been obvious after... 
the first uh, uh, failure to miss targets, and then the second, and then the third, that this thing just wasn't going to work, but he carried on putting more of other people's money in it. Well, he did, but then, but, but then the only person he had to convince that he was right was himself. Um, this is going back to the theory that at Invesco, when he was being the world's greatest fund manager, there were a whole load of people controlling what he did, whereas... Yeah, and and saying, you can't do that. There was yes. no one. Yes. It's, no, RMT, we, we're being a bit harsh on the man. I mean, this is one daft business proposition. Uh, but it's not the only one, is it? There was Halo Source. That was going to disrupt the world of drinking water from memory. Yes, and we've got the world of revolutionising uh, the world of washing machines and revolutionising the world of um, uh, tap-and-go uh, credit cards. And, I mean, it, and mattresses as well, another, another market that is clearly <coughs> right of disruption. That's Eve, Eve Sleep. Um, and all of these companies have met a similar fate. And then what's the one that was going to change the laws of physics? Um, or had to change the laws of physics to, to uh, flourish? Uh, 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 industrial heat. Right. So it, it, his business plan was that it was going to change the laws of physics and then disrupt the world or something? Um, yes. The only thing was that as, um, I read some articles um, just recently which showed that the, the original machine that um, Industrial Heat had, had, um, was hiring or had bought or whatever um, didn't seem to actually work. So. so it had technology that didn't work, and even if it did, it had to change the laws of physics, and then it was going to be a great investment. Um, yes, and there was also the small matter that the guy they were buying it from appears to have had a, a few problems in, in, in court. He was a crook. Um, that seems to be the case, yes. Okay, but apart from that, it was a great investment. Now, we, we, we laugh at Neil Woodford. These probably, all of these crazy investments, they weren't a big portion of his fund, but they were material. And the problem, of course, was that as each one of them blew up, it was another raft of bad publicity, which, in light of the overall fund underperforming, triggered redemptions. That's correct. Well, but, um, of course, they all appeared in WPCT, where um, the NAV just started slipping and slipping. And uh, so you've got a sort of dual crisis there. And I think... But they were in the equity income fund as well as laughably, because they weren't actually generating no chance of paying a dividend. They were in the equity income fund as well as WPCT. Yes. Um, and, um, I mean, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, I mean... It wasn't that they weren't paying a dividend, but many of them just had no income either themselves. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they found their way into the equity income fund. Yes. That should have raised a few eyebrows as well. Well, I think it did, but it certainly did for us. And, um, I mean, lately, you know, the, the mainstream press has started to pick up on some of them. Um, we had um, the FT running stories about um, the, the next listed Proton Partners, which is just a complete joke of a company. Um, we'll come to that in the section on crazy valuations. But yeah, yeah the Edward Press has finally picked up on this, which, it, which is welcome, uh, the sinner that repenteth. Um, in terms of, of these crack, these are crackers business plans and there is the issue of redemptions. How Neil Woodford's fund, which is unbelievable for a unit trust, has been overdrawn for since when? Is it January 20? 18? It's, it's something like that, yes. Um, it's well over again. That was meant to be an emergency <clears throat> measure. 
It was supposed to be an emergency measure, but then um, Woodford Patient Capital also decided to borrow money from the bank, um, and it's been at its borrowing limit for about about the same period. The thing is that Woodford Patient Capital is an investment trust. So you're not going to have an issue of redemptions there. Now, you could argue that uh, when you're investing in a, in a portfolio of cash-guzzling companies, you should actually be keeping a bit of spare cash by, uh, at hand. But the equity fund is a unit trust. And it, by January 2018, or whenever he started the, running the overdraft, uh, he was facing redemptions on a month-on-month -month basis. So running well, it was. as an emergency measure, as in the prospectus, that seems acceptable. But surely the ACD or the FCA or someone should have said, Neil, old boy, uh, you've not been running it as an emergency measure. You've been running it for 19 months. Um, yes. Um, and, you know, if it's an, I mean, is this like a world record length of emergency or are you actually going to do something about it? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen before an equity income fund with an overdraft. I think, he, well, he would say that he was trying, he did do something about it in that he was forced to sell the family silver. He was forced to sell the blue chip stocks. Uh, you know, the sort of reasons people invested in Woodford is you, you're the one who spots value in blue chips. Uh, Lloyds Bank, AstraZeneca. He was forced to sell them to meet redemptions. But even after selling a raft of blue chips, he still didn't have enough money, so had to keep the overdraft going. Yes, but he, he should have tried to get ahead of the game. I mean, you could see the, the redemptions were run, weren't slowing down. And, um, you know, I think he, he could and should have dealt with that at a much sooner level. The way um, he could have got ahead of the game, of course, is not to have thrown more good money at bad in the case of uh, yeah. RM2, etc., etc., but instead to have started the rather difficult process of selling some of his more illiquid investments. And he didn't. He sold his liquid investments and threw more money at the illiquid investments, which is actually just bad fund management. Um, yes. And, I mean, you, you know, fund, fund managers get things wrong, and you, you, you couldn't sort of haul him up for that and say he needs to be left swinging from the nearest tree. Um, but, you know, for a, an investment guru, it seems to be a pretty basic mistake. Well, it's, and, the sort of thing you, it's the sort of thing you'd see on the uh, uh, LSE Asylum or ADVFN. Oh, yes. I've just sold my shares in BP so I can average down in Anglo-African oil and gas or in cloud tag. That was the mentality. That's the mentality of a bulletin board moron, not well, a British well, greatest yeah, fund man. Yes, because one, yes, one day this is going to be massive. Uh, well, no, it's just going to be a massive disaster. <laughs> Um, okay, we, we can, but, but at the same time, he was also throwing more money at companies like Keir, where... It, well, it that's, that's what I wanted to come to, is, is the, the Keirs and the Provident Financials, which are not, you know, crazy business propositions, they are proper businesses. But in both cases, and I think in Purple Bricks as well, uh, uh, Woodford averaged down time and time again because he thought he knew better than the market. Well, yes. I mean, that, that's the only conclusion you can draw. And I mean, financial. I think he was it the one, financial one where uh, there was a warning, and everyone was saying the dividend's going to be cut, etc. And Neil Woodford put out some pompous piece saying, "I've spoken to the management, and uh, jolly decent fellows. They say everything's fine, and the dividend's going to be okay. We're buying more." And six weeks later, the dividend was cut. Um, yes, but, the, but then the same thing happened in Keir last autumn, saying it's all being run very well and um, we're completely confident. And then 
out of the blue, we had a rights issue. What so Keir strikes me, uh, the problem with financial uh, uh, is a scandal. The thing about Keir which strikes me as odd is we had a new CEO come in and say, we're going to have a strategic review. Now, it must have been clear from the macro picture, the demise of, of other firms, high-profile firms in this sector, um, which I think Woodford might have invested yeah. in as well. But uh, it must have been clear from the macro picture, but also from what was happening at Keir. But at that point, the remaining dividend was clearly under threat. When a CEO, a new CEO says we're having a strategic review, you know that the next announcements aren't going to be good. He's going to throw the kitchen sink at it, blame it on the old guys and start again. And it's at that point you might think about buying shares, but Woodford didn't wait. He carried on buying more shares. No, he carried on buying. And But it, it wasn't just a new CEO. We had um, uh, 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 the company fessed up that it's got it's got its debt calculations wrong. And, um, and, if, and then the next thing we had, um, well, we're actually, we were supposed to be ca uh, cash neutral by the end of June. That's not going to happen. Oh, and by the way, trading's been pretty poor as well, and, and, and. I mean, the writing and he's still was on. carried on buying shares. And he, and he seems to have just carried on buying shares until the money ran out. Is that, is that, uh, do you think there was an element of him doing that, of thinking, look, if I buy the shares, uh, because I'm Neil Woodford, and let's face it, I am Britain's best ever fund manager, other folks will, will follow, and this will therefore support the share price and help hold up my nav. Well, possibly. Um, it, might also, it might also have helped um, stave off more trouble at the business. Um, because, you know, if its share price is collapsing so far that, that its market cap is dropping terribly, then its suppliers are going to, be, are going to run into trouble getting insurance to, for their bills. Which is quite clearly what has happened. Which is quite um, clearly what's happened. Okay, so we can, we can put Keir and Providential, uh, Provident Financial, uh, and there are quite a lot of others, down to the category of monumental misjudgment. Uh, well, still, I, I would go further with Keir. I just thought it was a Hail Mary pass. You know, you must have been sitting there thinking, I've called all of these other ones wrong. I've got to get one right soon, and I could really do with that now because I'm in trouble. Yeah, I think if Neil had sort of come to a few matches at West Ham with me, he'd know that uh, just because we've been playing dreadfully fast <laughs> four doesn't mean to say we're going to get play well in the next one. Well, um, absolutely. But it, I, I think yeah, you're right there. That reminds me of uh, Philip Richards and Northern Rock, uh, when Philip Richards is running Rab Capital, and he's in his, you know, the last few days when things are really going horribly wrong, just as Woodford was this summer. And, yeah. Wood, and oh, Philip Richards... Uh, bet the ranch on Northern Rock. The argument being that had he got it right, uh, and actually, you know, there was no chance because it, it was clearly insolvent, uh, but had he got it right, and he was telling people it was insolvent, but Richards thought that it may be not insolvent, had he got it right, he would have been seen to be a genius. He would have made a lot of money in a liquid stock, which would have helped him with the redemptions, and he would have got his uh, 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 PR people going out there saying, Richards hasn't lost his touch. He's still a genius. The Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday would have lapped it up. And he well, might exactly. have taken predictions. And, and Keir, in the same way, could be seen as Woodford's equivalent, don't you think? Yes, I mean, yeah. I think the thing is that, um, you know, I think Neil Woodford is sort of thinking back to the good old days where, he, you know, he did call the market right, for example, in the banking crisis or in the dot-com bubble, and he, and he invested heavily in companies that were just out of favour. Um, 
But what he's been doing here is he's been investing in a company that's actually in trouble. And two of its major peers have gone to the, have become insolvent. I mean, it's... It's not investing in good companies which are out of favour. It's investing in bad companies which are quite rightly out of favour because they're bad companies. Yes, or just the, the economic conditions are running against them. And yeah. um, to do that at a time when you're struggling to raise the money to meet redemptions just strikes me as stupid. Okay, let's go. We can, we can hang in now for being a, a man who showed phenomenally bad judgment. Um, but could we go further and say, actually, he did things which were very naughty? And here we want to look at the valuations of some of the unquoted stocks, both within Equity Income and Woodford Patient Capital Trust. Uh, Benevolent AI is a case study, I believe. Yes, I mean, I mean Cynical Bear described it as Woodford's kryptonite. And, um, I mean, I, I was rereading some of it. That was back in May 17, I think. Well, May, um, 18, May, May 18. May 18. May 18. When um, the FT and Daily Mail were still blowing Woodford off. Yeah. Okay. Back in May yeah. 18, he called that one out. Yes. And um, it raised. There was a there was a fundraising. Um, it was just just astonishing. Um, there were several things about it. I mean, one, one was um, part of the holding of Equity Income Fund disappeared and moved across to um, Equity Income, uh, to WPCT. Um, part of it was that um, the, 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 the fundraising themselves seemed, seemed to be absolutely ludicrous. Um, the, the April fundraising last year, um, 2018, it raised 150 115 million on a valuation of two billion pounds, and um, but a large chunk of that seems to have come from some um, cosy deal with um, the owner of the, the Cambridge Lab, where um, he handed over the Cambridge Lab, which was loss making, and got a stack of shares and 10 million, which then got reinvested in. And I mean, it, the long and the short of it seemed to be that the guy bought 40 million pounds worth of shares in benevolent AI, but it only cost him 10 million quid. Yeah, and, and, got rid, and he got rid of a, a cash guzzling asset. Yes. Uh, and he was a former business partner of the CEO of benevolent AI, or a former yes. investor in it. Uh, and so of that fundraise, the 2 billion fundraise, uh, 40 or 50 million came from uh, this really very, very smelly deal indeed. Uh, yes. yes. I bought a crap asset. And the rest came from Neil Woodford. And the so rest came from Neil Woodford. Right up uh, to increase the carrying value of his existing shares in benevolent yes. AI, which themselves were actually were crazy, weren't they? There was a, a, a fundraising round back in 2015 where uh, Woodford uh, put in 40 million or something out of 150 50 million valuation. And um, then. Yeah, it was 40 million at 150 um, million valuation. And then a few um, months and, and, he, and, he, and he was um, he was just four months later um, in went another 6.7 million and the valuation was raised to 1.15 billion. So it's a I tiny mean, insignificant funding round, but the net effect of that was that he was able to ro increase the carrying value of his much larger earlier investment. Yes, by about seven by about sevenfold or something. And for, that. For, 
for a bit of back pocket change. And that means that uh, the net asset value of the equity income fund was increased, which yes. meant that Woodford Investment Management was able to ch uh, earn more in management fees, which yes. meant that Woodford made a lot of money. But now the chickens are coming home to roost, but Neverland AI's next funding round, if it well, gets away at all, well, is I, going I, it's going to have to be at a, a lower level because um, it's passing the hat around and, and obviously Neil Woodford hasn't got any cash. But it's going to be at a much, much lower level, not to the 2 billion, not even to the 1.15 billion. It's going to be at a much lower level than that, which means that now he has to write down the value of these holdings in both WPCT and the equity income fund. But that's bad news for unit holders because they're now falls. Uh, and for investors, because they're now falls. But of course, Woodford's already trousered the management fees for two years on the back of the higher valuations. Well, it, I, it gets worse than that, because after the the, value, the funding round taking the valuation up to just over a billion, um, WPCT uh, bought 50 million worth of the shares from Equity Income Fund and paid for it using, using its own quoted stocks. Well, that's great news for Equity Income Fund, it, it, you know, you know, it, it, it's managed to cash out of it. But what about WPCT? I mean, it, it's been absolutely hammered. WPCT is left today, as we speak, with very few quoted stocks. And one of the reasons is it's had to buy all these unquoted investments from equity income because Neil Woodford uh, managed to push the fund to a position where more than 10% of his holdings were in unquoted investments, which the FCA doesn't allow. And Correct. he tried various measures like those dubious listings in Guernsey where shares never traded <clears> or pretending that a company was going to list 12 months down the line and therefore counting it as quoted. But in the end, it caught up with him. But these were the early measures, which were simply to dump your unquoted shit in WPCT and yes. take away its liquid investments in return. Yes, and, and it'll take two or three years for the chickens to come roost on come home to roost, but um, now that WPCT has no cash and, he, and he's, his equity income fund is gated, any, any of these um, WPCT firms needing more funding, um, he's just going to have to say, sorry chaps, we haven't got any cash. And then the WPCT, either they fail to get funding at all, in which case it's a huge write-off, or they'll have to go to other investors who are going to demand far more sensible invest, uh, valuation levels, in which case he'll be diluted to hell. Yes. I mean, okay. not, not, neither is a happy place to be. No. Um, Just, uh, and, and we, but we, have, we also have um, him getting around the rules. Because um, there was also, again, with benevolent AI, um, there was cancelling and re reissuing shares. And Cynical Bear wrote about it in April last year, where um, a bunch of shares were cancelled um, and then um, with a view to reissuing them. And I, as far as I can make out, this is because if if you if you've outstayed your welcome in the um, a listing is pending in the next 12 months, um, then all you have to do is cancel the shares, get the company to say we're going to list in the next 12 months, and then you can reissue them again. Exactly, it was a way to get around that limit, and he could therefore continue to classify benevolent AI as a listed entity yeah. uh, on the basis it would list within 12 months 
uh, uh, via that mechanism. It was a ruse. It maybe ticked the FCA's boxes, but it was a, a ruse nonetheless. And that's where the FDA failed, of course, is it allowed Woodford to get by by ticking boxes without seeing the underlying intent of his actions. Can we move yes. away from benevolent AI? Is that the only one where the valuation uh, raises eyebrows? I mean, I've talked about Proton Partners ad, nauseam on Bearcast, uh, but for the, just in case anyone forgets it, here Woodford invested at a uh, low level, like 40 million, then again at 165 million. The company then tried to get an IPO away at 344 million. It tried to raise 50 million quid. No one was interested. Woodford stepped up and put up 20 million quid and promised another 80 if it was needed. And he's already had 45 drawn down. And the effect of doing that was that he could increase the carrying value of WPCT, both in the uh, of Proton, both within WPCT and the equity income fund from his previous levels. Had Woodford not invested at the previous levels, he would clearly have gone back to Proton and said, look, I'm the only game in town. I'll put the money in, but it's going to be at a 20 million valuation. That yes. would have been value investing. But he didn't because his prime concern was protecting his net asset value. In fact, inflating his net asset value and be able to charge more management fees rather than being a good investor. But are there other cases of unquoted investments where we could uh, uh, eyebrows should be raised? Well, yes. I mean, there's, there's Oxford Nanopore, which raised 100 million in December 16, and there was a, a, a good song and dance in the press that, saying what a wonderful thing it was, which valued the business at one and a quarter billion. Um, it had at the time just four million of revenues. Um, and yet, six months later, the valuation was raised between 10 and 20% across the Woodford funds. Um, but its co-investor, IP Group, kept the same valuation. Um, apparently, this was because uh, certain milestones had been achieved. But so close to a huge funding round, that seems um, a bit nonsensical to me, especially, especially, if one of your, especially if one of your co-investors doesn't change its valuation uh, but you, 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 you mark yours up. Woodford would defend that by saying that subsequent to that, Oxford Nanopore has managed to do a fundraise at two billion or something like that, um, and therefore uh, his foresight uh, was uh, something that could be uh, was justified. He was just a visionary in realising the good news that was going to come. Right, and, but so an IP group are a bunch of muppets, which is why he invests in all the same companies they go. They're, they're, they're less visionary than him. Are, are there any others where there's been strange valuation? Exercise? Well, um, there's Immunicore, um, where um, they they had a funding round um, at the end of uh, 2016, um, and the the co-investor there was Mallon, and. Um, by June 17, Woodford had increased his valuation by 40%, but Mallon didn't write theirs up. So again, you, you wonder, well, you know, which, which number's more likely to be right? <laughs> yeah, Woodford's a visionary. Okay, so we got some issues of aggressive valuation, which I think we could put a hanging case for saying Woodford benefited personally from these aggressive valuations, and his investors haven't necessarily uh, shared in his good fortune. Where do we stand now? The equity income fund is gated. Um, do you think it will ever come back? My personal view is it probably won't. Um, 
And I think it's going to be a matter of time before the FCA realises that he can't actually get enough liquidity um, and that they're going to have to do something more serious. Um, the problem that Woodford's got at the Equity Income Fund is that he's already got a huge bill hanging over his head when the fund was gated. Kent County Council wanted its 228 million back. Um, he was overdrawn. Um, and, um, and of course, there'd been a, a daily queue of about 10 million pounds worth of redemptions coming in anyway. But on a fund that's now down to just under three and a half billion, you wonder, given that it's been gated for at least two months by the time there's another decision made, um, anyone left in the fund is, it, I mean, they're surely all going to say, no, I want my money out. My guess is that if it were to reopen for business, your level of redemptions, all of the Hargreaves funds, Hargreaves clients have all been stuffed into it and are really pissed off. Uh, your level of redemptions is going to be 50, 60, 70 percent. I would have thought, yeah. And, and, and Woodford and the FCA will make sure that in order to get to that, to be prepared for that, he will have to have 50, 60, 70 percent in cash or FTSE 100 stocks. Correct. Which but will take him six or seven months. I think it'll take him longer because um, he's going to have to offload things like Purple Bricks, um, Kia, um, as well as all the tiny little things which have been uh, are more or less worthless already. But it, um, it, isn't it going to be a problem? I mean, let's, let's play out this scenario. Uh, in next Easter, Woodford says, right, 70% of my uh, fund... Uh, which is now worth two and a half billion because a few things have happened, uh, is either in cash or FTSE 100 stocks. I'm open for business again. The rest is in positions I haven't been able to liquidate yet, like Proton Partners or Benevolent AI, etc. Yeah. Uh, but I reckon I can weather the storm. What happens then is the fund comes back. He limits redemptions to 10% a day, which you can do under uh, the FCA rules. Um, but in a week, after a week or 10 days, He's down to a fund which is capitalised at 750 million and which is invested in Proton Partners and Benevolent AI and utter rubbish, which he can't liquidate. Which he can't liquidate and the fund would have to be gated again. Yeah. Well, that's pretty bad. And there is another issue, of course, is that whilst Woodford is, not charging, uh, is charging fees now, were you to get to that scenario and the fund was to be, let us say, down to a billion, um, then his fund management income would only be six and a half million a year, which to you and I is quite a lot of money, but his overheads at Woodford Investment Management are 30-odd million a year. Now, I know he's sacking staff, but he's not going to be able to sack enough to be viable at six and a half million of income. So Woodford Investment Management would go bust. Yes. Um, I mean, is the issue, isn't it? How can the FCA allow this man to manage money again? Well, I don't really see that it can, because I think he's been caught with his trousers down in so many directions all at the same time. Um, he's been bending the rules so inside out over themselves, upside down and back again. Um, I mean, it, even the listings in Guernsey wasn't the, the end of the story there, because um, at least one of the listings, I think two or three of them, um, um, he was the only holder of that particular class of stock, and he'd announced he didn't want to sell it. So. The listing was completely um, pointless, um, and the only reason was so you could tick a box saying, this is listed. And it's the same with the, the Proton Partners listing on Next. There's been one trade of 155 shares since it listed in February. 
on earth can anybody think? Economy. Economy. 400 million where the value of shares traded has been 300 quid yes is okay so we could so there are all sorts of reasons why actually the best possible outcome for the equity income fund is either a uh, that he'd be put into another vehicle given some manager looks after it and just distributes cash over time uh, or it's merged with another fund presumably the income focus fund I know redemptions are slowing to a trickle, but he still has to write a fine half a million quid a day uh, in order to meet redemptions. That's yes. going to be affecting him as well. He's going to be out of all his most liquid stocks. He's pretty soon going to have to be selling stocks where the act of selling will damage the NAV even further. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, the income focus fund, he's also got the small issue of the next dividend round, which is... Um, gets declared at the end of this month, and my money is on a quite a steep cut from last year. Which, which will, of course, spur more redemptions going Which forward. will spur more redemptions, yes. Finally, of course, Woodford Patient Capital Trust, where I, I am, as you know, a loyal shareholder. Um, Indeed. The stated net asset value is now 83p. What do you think the real net asset value is? Well, I mean, I don't know, 30p? I mean, it... It, it's all shit. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything of any great value there. Um, Oxford Nanopore apparently is going to list, and um, but you know that hasn't happened yet. But I mean, the rest of it is things like Thin Film and RM2 and Benevolent AI and all Atom these. Bank. At, 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 Atom Bank, which was transferred into it, a chunk of it was transferred from the Equity Income Fund. And a few days later, the Spanish bank BBVA, was it, um, yeah. said it wasn't, it wasn't going to buy the bank after all. So, I mean, quite, quite what happens about the valuation it was transferred at, I, don't, I, I mean, that'll be probably a question for the future there. Um, the problem, the problem uh, for, for, for the Woodford Patient Capital Trust is, uh, one suspects, you're right, that uh, it's going to have, uh, even Oxenanapore, it would like to pretend is going to be its saving grace, but there's no way that Nanapore can get a float away with the overhang of the Woodford stock there beforehand. In order for Nanapore to float, if indeed it is to float, they have to somehow arrange to place out all of Neil Woodford's holdings and one would imagine that that's going to have to be at a pretty deep discount to the flotation price, which would mean that actually he would maybe be able to turn his holding into cash within WPCT and the equity income fund, but it's not going to be at a premium to book. Well, yes, but he, I mean, he, he, might, he might be able to turn it into cash, but he's got the bank to pay off. Because this is the other problem, that he, he's borrowing money from the bank and paying, paying interest on it. At the same time as the, the valuations of his holdings is falling. So, you know, the investors are going to be paying twice. But presumably, if Nanapore were able to clear, and maybe selling his Autolus shares were able to clear uh, much or all of the overdraft, that wouldn't be the end of the problem to WPCT, because you're going to have a series of cash hungry, hungry uh, investments. The best ones gone, Nanapore, uh, and also mm -hmm. sort of listed. Uh, and the rest of them are going to be saying, well, our next funding round is coming, WPCT. Are you in or out? And WPCT will have to be out, and it will be diluted. And some of those funding rounds will fail without the support of Woodford. Well, yes. Um, I mean, look, look at Thin Film in Norway, where um, it announced it was going to have a funding round. Um, 
and then it was going to have a funding round and then the the deadline day for announcing the funding round passed and there was still nothing and the funding round they then tried to do an emergency placing and even that failed so um thin film has not raised any more money and i think my my reckoning is it'll be out of cash sometime in the autumn and in the good old days that. would have stepped in and would have done the refinancing and yeah, possibly hit, done the premium yeah, hit, hit 10 million chaps off you go. Give me a ring in the year. And Thin Film, from memory, is in the Income Focus Fund and the Equity Income Fund and the Patient Capital Trust. Yes, well, well of course, it's a fine firm because it's listed. Yeah, of course. Right, that's pretty grim. Thank you very much for your time, Nigel. We'll keep on following, uh, and we know you'll be following Woodford on an almost daily basis and share profits. Uh, thank Absolutely. you. My pleasure. Wow. Well, that was quite an interview. It went on a little bit longer than anticipated. But I hope you enjoyed that and got some idea of the depth of coverage which we have provided of Neil Woodford over on Share Profits. I know there'll be some people out there who'll be saying, but hang on a second, this is all after the event. It's very easy to criticise Woodford now. Uh, why were you uh, two years ago? Well, if you are a subscriber to Share Profits, uh, the website which I edit, you'll know that two years ago, uh, more than two years ago, we were warning of what would happen, of the collapse of the Woodford Empire, and we were giving that detailed bottom-up analysis of some of the crazy stocks which he was investing in, and also some of the very dubious transfers between his funds and valuation methodologies, which he was employing in order to boost the net asset value of his funds. We were there two years ago. In fact, the first warning we gave about Neil Woodford was in 2015, four years ago. Uh, and uh, this website, the website I edit, Share Profits, has carried uh, more than 800 articles since late 2016, warning of Woodford, incredible coverage by Nigel Somerville, uh, by Cynical Bear, uh, and modestly also by myself. You know, we do give warnings today uh, or this week. Uh, we have had a yet another commendation from the Financial Reporting Council. The Financial Reporting Council is the body which must uh, look at accounts filed by quoted companies which are in some way suspect. I've reported a number of companies to the FRC and had you know nice emails back and we've seen companies making changes. Twice now, I've had formal detailed letters confirming that my results have had devastating consequences for very big companies. Uh, the first was over Quindell, where the FRC uh, said explicitly that it extended the scope of its inquiry into the fraud at Quindell and the fraudulent accounts by another two years because of the work that I did and supplied to them. Uh, the latest is a company called First Derivatives. Uh, when I first started looking at First Derivatives, it was capitalised at about a billion quid. Today it's capitalised at 800 million. I raised detailed objections as to why its accounting treatment was inaccurate uh, the FRC took that on board, spoke to the company, and the company has had to restate its results and change its accounting policies. It has also, incidentally, ditched its auditor, the disgraced, uh, scandal-ridden office of KPMG Belfast, which has been auditing uh, this company's uh, cooked books uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, it has now been replaced. Uh, this is not the last company which I will report to the FRC, uh, or indeed which I have. 
and it's worth flagging up for you that there are three which I've reported in relatively recent times uh, where I think that, that it is inevitable that the company will have to do a material mistake, uh, restatement uh, of the way that it prepared its books. The first is Premier Technical Services Group. Uh, you can't short this company. It's, it's, it's already accepted a takeover offer from Macquarie. Uh, however, uh, it is quite clear that the way the company uh, chose not to declare vast payments to the CEO uh, was in breach of IFRS guidelines, and I have reported it. Uh, the second is St. James's House, formerly Box Hill, a company run by Lib Dem grandee Lord Razzle. Uh, its accounts drive a coach and horses through IFRS and clearly need to be restated when they are. Uh, the balance sheet support the company claims will disappear completely. And I suspect the company itself may disappear in, in short order. Uh, the final is what I think is the biggest of the three, uh, diversified gas and oil accounts drive a coach and horses through IFRS. Uh, they need to be restated dramatically. Uh, the company's reported a profit uh, each of the past few years. That profit has come largely, and in one case, uh, more than entirely, uh, from accounting jiggery pokery rather than from producing gas and oil in the ground. Now, it's Nomad uh, uh, and Broker, I think it's Stiefel Europe is certainly the broker. They don't seem to care about these things because the, this company is a moneymaker for everybody in the city. On the basis of uh, profits, which are complete fantasy, uh, the company has ramped up its share price and its most recent fundraise was in February of this year. It raised $234 million. Uh, people close to the management were able to sell some shares into the same placing. Uh, the fees on that fundraise were $9 million, which were shared around a number of city firms, but principally Stiefel Europe. So they don't really care. They're on the side of the company. But I think the FRC will, uh, uh, to my reading of IFRS, and I've been proved right uh, uh, on first derivatives on a number of other occasions, is that uh, the accounts of diversified gas and oil are a complete and utter joke, and they will have to be restated dramatically. Uh, you can get more analysis and, and a fuller explanation of diversified gas and oil, of St. James's uh, House, and of uh, Premier uh, Technical Services Group, and why they breach accounting guidelines over on share profits. And if you like the sound of what, what I do, and you're not a subscriber to share profits, I do do a daily podcast, a bear cast. Uh, it only costs $5.99 a month, which is less than a glass of wine. Well, the sort of glasses of wine that I would enjoy uh, in, a, in, in a London cafe. Uh, and you get uh, seven bear casts a week, seven podcasts from me. Now, uh, before we go on to our next interview, uh, I should just say this podcast, unlike the material on share profits, is free. It is free because of the sponsorship of Riverfork Global Capital. Uh, thank you to the guys at Riverfork Global Capital, who are the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies, provides equity, debt funding, uh, short-term medium loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debts, royalty and equity financing. Funding can be provided quickly and easily. And as I have noted before, you know, I'm not particularly keen on some of these structured funding products, but Riverfork certainly uh, is the best of breed in terms of provision. Uh, there are some people out there who are just, should be tarred, feathered, and drummed out of financial services. Uh, their offerings are guaranteed to completely screw the share price of the companies that they're working with. I don't believe that's the case with Riverfort, 
Uh, if you are the CEO of a listed company and you're listening, uh, even if you are the CEO of Diversified Gas and Oil or uh, St. James's House, uh, during the summer, Riverfort will be hosting a series of masterclasses, both online and face-to-face, to help company directors understand how to access and optimize funding for their companies. If you are a CEO or a finance director, uh, if you are interested, contact info at riverfortcapital.com for more information. Now, my next guest is also uh, uh, in the business of providing funding to companies. And my second guest on today's inaugural Share Profits radio show is Andrew Monk, who is the chief executive of VSA Capital, a stockbroking firm. He's one of the few brokers who I'm prepared to quote because he's an opinionated uh, individual who doesn't hold back from saying it as it is. How long have you been a broker, Andrew? Too long. Um, uh, the real answer is 35 years. 35 years. Do you ever think you're going to retire? Broking, no one makes any money in broking anymore. Or are you going to have to carry on working till you drop? Well, no, look, the industry obviously has changed dramatically and the money to be made is significantly less. I was lucky to enjoy the good years. Um, but I love it. I still love the market. I love doing deals. I mean, you can't keep going forever. And sometimes when I'm down in my house in Cornwall, I think maybe I should just stay here. But no, I, I enjoy it. I'm going to keep going. Okay. Now, uh, VSA Capital... Uh, is largely, am I right in saying, uh, a broking house which specialises in resources plays, oil, mining, renewable energy? Uh, we certainly, the, our main focus is resources, but we've done a lot of work in what I call transitional energy, which is batteries, energy storage, and all the new forms that are coming across in the sort of transitional energy revolution. Uh, we also have an office in Shanghai, so we do a lot of cross-border M&A with China and, and Asia. And actually, we've now got a very successful joint venture going um, in Johannesburg with some, some black ladies. So we're starting to do some really interesting work out of Africa as well. So we're a bit more than just resources, but yeah, it's a big focus of ours. Okay, let's start with China. Um, doing business in China, isn't, isn't fraud endemic there? Um, or is it just Chinese companies listed on AIM that are fraud frauds? It's the Chinese companies listed on AIM that tend to be the, the fraud endemic. I mean, China, actually, until you've been there and seen it, I mean, you get fraud in, in the UK. In fact, we've had quite a lot of fraud recently in the UK. You've spotted a lot of it. So it happens in every country. Um, but if you actually do the right things, um, you can actually do some very interesting cross-border because the Chinese want to buy a lot of Western businesses, particularly in resources. Um, so, and we don't, we don't raise money in the UK for Chinese companies. We go the other way. We get money out of China coming to the West. Okay. Uh, so would you put money yourself into Alibaba? Not that I'm saying it's a fraud for the avoidance of doubt, although others have made that allegation, but would you put money yourself in? Uh, not directly into Alibaba, but I do have money, actually. I'll be absolutely honest with you, with Fidelity China Special Situations run by Peter Dale, and I suspect that they do own that stock. But it's been a very good performing uh, trust, or whatever it is, um, and it's in my pension, and I'm quite happy with it. Would you say that if I wanted to get exposure to China, the way to do it is via an investment trust rather than trying to pick stocks myself? Absolutely, yes. Do you think that the Chinese economic miracle, I mean, there are some of us who are somewhat skeptical about the rate of growth. We think the figures are over 
uh, and we also wonder whether it's sustainable, particularly in the face of the anticipated slowdown in the growth of the population over the next 30 years. Do you think the Chinese economic miracle is sustainable? Uh, to large, yes, I think it is to a large extent. I mean, clearly it's going to slow, but I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time going out there and uh, travel around, but I mean, just in Shanghai alone, which is the same population, basically, virtually as the entire United Kingdom, you know, the wealth and, and uh, energy and business going on is, is incredible. Um, so they are going to become the largest economy in the world. There's no question doubt about that. But clearly growth will slow. And like any economy, they have issues. I mean, most of the Western economies have issues. But, you know, they, they're very good at making decisions because they just make them. But yet at the same time, you know, you will see other countries like Vietnam, for instance, they're going to grow up in their sort of wake, and they will be the faster growing nations, and China will start to slow a little bit. So it's, it's not all sunshine, but it has been an amazing growth story. Don't you think that the problem which may sink China, but actually I think it's a wider issue, is debt, uh, that there is an enormous bad debt potential amongst the Chinese banks. Uh, capital has been misallocated as a result of quasi-central planning, and that will come back to bite the Chinese economy. But Rolling that to a wider issue, uh, we look at personal corporate government debt across the West. Isn't debt the big sort of elephant in the room for all of us? Well, I mean, debt is, debt is for the whole world. There's probably too much debt across the whole world. Is it specific to China? I mean, people have been calling the Chinese debt bubble about to burst for about five years now, and it still hasn't. And the economics in China are a bit different to the economics in the West, because if the Chinese government decide one day just to wipe out debt, they sort of can do that. So you can't, it's comparing apples with oranges. Um, but yeah, look, there is too much debt probably in China, there's too much debt probably in the US, there's probably too much debt in the UK. Um, it's a big problem if you have too much debt, but at least the Chinese, because they're so centrally controlled, can manage it in their own way. Do you think debt will become an issue in the UK? Personal debt uh, is something I'm very concerned about. Uh, not, not me personally, um, but the, the population as a whole. Personal debt, but also, also government debt. Will that become an issue for us? No, I think you know, having too, too much debt is, is always a dangerous thing. I mean, we see it with companies as well. There's one in particular that I know you like to talk about, which is virtually sunk now because of its debt. Um, yeah, too much debt is always a bad thing. I think the UK, you know, we're not good, but we're not horrific. Um, so I'd, I'm not looking for a catastrophe suddenly to happen, um, but it should always be carefully managed. Well, we'll come on to that company uh, in a second. Before we do that, just the issue of transitional energy or, or the phrase that you used. Um, I understand that the zeitgeist is for greener energy, renewable, and all that shit, which I don't really believe in, but I'm not going to bat against the zeitgeist. Isn't the problem that uh, with all new technologies, and we could go back to radio stocks or uh, airlines or, or internet stocks, whilst the, the direction of travel for the technology is right, backing individual winners at the start is incredibly difficult? Yeah, I mean, I'll pick up on two points there. I mean, the transitional energy revolution, actually, in my view, is not about being green. It's simply that the cost of your energy falls dramatically because basically the marginal cost of solar energy is now basically down to zero, whereas we all know a barrel of oil will cost you $60. So transitional energy, it happens to be green, but it's really energy costs are going to come 
down incredibly. Um, now, going to your second point about backing in new technologies, you're absolutely right. Look, occasionally you get lucky and you find a technology that turns out to be a winner. And I think, as you know, in the past, I was very lucky with a company called Arm, backed it when it was just 12 people in a small barn in Cambridge, and of course was then taken out for 34 billion or something. Um, but you're right, trying to find individual companies that can win in such a massive industry and a massive industrial change is very dangerous. Um, now, what you tend to find then is that you need to, these industries, you can either keep supporting them, hope they get there, or you hope they get, bring in a strategic partner who's a big daddy who can actually help them get over the finishing line. And that actually tends to be what happens. A big daddy is found when, when they, they watch it, they watch the technology developing, and then they go, right, it's now got to a stage where I think it's really interesting. It just needs a little bit of help to take it over to become mass market, and in we go. And actually, even Arm had that to a certain extent because they had Apple um, as a shareholder. In in terms of, I mean, let's take one example which both of us got wrong: uh, Red uh, uh, Red Tea Energy. Uh, isn't it not? It's not you're battling when you're investing in such enterprises. Not only will the technology get adopted, how quickly will the technology get adopted? And that's that's a real killer because uh, companies can run out of money before the technology is taken up. But also with entrepreneurs, uh, you and I are both entrepreneurs and we've both had mixed records, uh, but uh, entrepreneurs as opposed to safe businesses, sometimes, much more, more often than not, they, they screw up. Uh, well, first of all, as you know, we are the corporate advisor. Yep. So I have to be careful what I say, but I basically can't say anything under MAR. Um, but it is public knowledge that there is a strategic review taking place because they recognize that they need a strategic partner. And as you probably know from the last set of results, they did say well, that the executive chairman, Neil O'Brien, said that he was optimistic that that process was going well and that one would be found. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, to get, that's looking forward, but looking back, uh, Red Tea, both you and I uh, um, uh, were bulls of the stock. I, I cut my uh, losses a little bit before. You, you've not cut your losses yet. But uh, in the past, I'm not asking you to look forward and tell us uh, how things are going, because I wouldn't want you to break the law. Uh, we'll leave that to uh, John Mayer, Mayer ramping his corporate stocks on other podcasts. Uh, but historically... The management there, they did overspend, didn't they? There was a management issue. Yeah, I mean, the management has been shuffled a little bit to uh, try and resolve that problem. Um, I think that clearly it's cost more to get this industry up and running than perhaps was anticipated. The, the VRB industry could be absolutely massive. I mean, this is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry, potentially. VRB... Uh, vanadium redox flow battery industry. So it's the long-term energy storage. I think probably the problem has been that the market wasn't quite ready for the new technology. It's still hung up on lithium-ion batteries, which really aren't suitable. Uh, and look, you always have that dangerous, the, the classic VHS Betamax issue. Uh, and what we need in the in the VRB industry is for a, a good number of VRBs to be out in the market, proving the point that they are the best form of energy storage in certain circumstances. If that can be done, and I believe it will be done probably in the next 12 months, then you'll see a flood of orders and there will be billions and billions of dollars. And the players that are still in the game will absolutely make their shareholders a fortune. But we're not quite there yet. But I think we are getting very close.
The, uh, that VHS Betamax analogy, younger listeners, go and look on Google. You and I know exactly what you're referring to, Andrew, but younger people will say, what's he talking about? Uh, we're still young, Tom, really, at all. <laughs> uh, okay, whatever you say. Now, um, moving on from uh, 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 that to uh, the company you referred to earlier, one which was grossly over-indebted, Thomas Cook. Uh, I know we disagreed on it, and uh, um, uh, obviously I was right and you were wrong. Uh, the, the company's announced a partial debt for... Uh, it's announced the early stage of a proposed debt for equity deal, et cetera, et cetera. The shares last I looked on Friday were 6p. Um, that still capitalizes the company at 100 million. That's way too high, isn't it? Well, relative game, isn't it? Look, first of all, I mean, I, I, I believe the company, when I bought stock nearly a year ago now, could have actually been saved. But I believe the, uh, and particularly the board of directors, have handled this so badly that they missed huge opportunities and, and the board, particularly the non-execs, are the ones that actually should be scrutinised. But I did, as you know, um, about eight weeks ago, decide that a small loss is always better than a big loss. So I cut my position at a significantly higher price than it is today and took a very small loss. You can't always get it always right. And a small loss is always better than a big loss. Um, but, you know, is it worth anything today? Look, it's a real shame. It's actually a, it's had the potential to be a fantastic company. Fosun was a great shareholder, but of course now has become the, the gobbler. It's done a sort of Pac-Man on them. Um, it's a shame, but you're right, and you've been right. When debt starts trading at a massive discount, you know things are going to go wrong. Is, uh, can you rem ever remember a situation where debt has been trading at 50 cents or below and equity holders have made money from there? Uh, if, if it happens, it's a sort of one in a hundred opportunity. Uh, basically, with the debt that where it was trading, it was written all over the wall. This this was going under. Yeah. Okay. Um. Of course, uh, Thomas Cook. Uh, uh, it, it could have been so different if the company had been run by a woman. We need more diversity in boardrooms, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And I think we all know that Harriet Green was an absolute disaster. But again, you know, Harriet Green was brought in by the same board that sits there today that's now seen it destroyed. And uh, you know, I've been openly critical of, of the board and non-execs. One of them is actually next door neighbour of mine. Uh, and I would say it straight to her face, you know, they have been completely off the ball here and they run it in a sort of management consulting theoretical way. And it's not, it's a down to earth industry. Um, you've, you, you've got to understand the industry and you've got to be there right in the heart of it all. It's a very fluid industry. So yeah, I, have, I, Fred, I don't have a lot of time for the board. It's one general point before we go on to what I really want to talk to you about, and that is non-execs tell me that they deserve to be paid a very large sum for turning up one day a month or two day a month or whatever because of the risks they run if the company goes wrong. Yet I see time and time again companies going wrong and the non-execs being worse than useless, and I think Woodford Patient Capital Trust where, of course, I am the loyal owner of 10 shares, is a case in point. They're worse than useless, and there is never any comeback to them. Can you remember a non-exec suffering any material comeback as a result of being useless? Now, actually, I think you, there, there can be times when a non-exec, uh, particularly if a company actually goes bust, it does show up on your record as a director of a company that's gone bust. So, look, I think my own view is that there's a mix of non-execs. There are some out there who just take lots of plum non-execs and they take about five of them and they get paid huge amounts of money and they don't do a lot. You do get some 
that are actually very good. And you get some that aren't paid a huge amount and still are very good. The real key is, though, you said it, you know, the idea of a non-exec shouldn't be just to turn up for a board meeting once a month. That's sort of non-exec. It's a complete waste of time. You want a non-exec who, yes, attends board meetings regularly, but also is working with you and, and talking to this chief executive regularly and just questioning him and questioning the strategy and sort of saying, you know, where do we want to take it? So it shouldn't be a one-day-a-month one job. It should be a much more involved job. Clearly not full-time, but, you know, there should be a, a, a much more regular dialogue. It strikes me also, the other thing, by the way, is that just this desperate desire to have more gender balance in the boardrooms means that companies are absolutely desperate to uh, appoint uh, women to be non-execs. And uh, I do wonder that in this desperate scrabble to appoint anyone wearing a skirt, I'm tempted to identify as a woman myself and wear a skirt. Uh, you know, this is a desperate scrabble. Even I might manage to get a job. And that there may be some people who are not quite up to it. Well, I'm sure you look very nice in a skirt, Tom. But um, <laughs> look, I think my view is um, not so dissimilar to yours, but I'm probably a bit more diplomatic about it. Look, in my view, if somebody is good at their job, regardless of which gender they are, they should get the position. Yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of women out there who are very, very talented. But there's also a lot of women out there who don't want those positions. It should be down to how good you are, not what gender you are. Time to put Mrs. Monk back into the workplace, I suggest. Now, um, the, we said earlier that VSA specialises in resource uh, uh, stocks. I noticed one thing that I do follow is uh, your mother's inheritance tax portfolio. Um, uh, for those who don't know, Andrew's poor mother has two, uh, 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 a stockbroker and a fund manager as sons, uh, who've stolen all her money and put it into a portfolio of AIM stocks to avoid inheritance tax. There are no resource plays in that. Why is that, Andrew? Well, actually, most resource plays don't uh, get inheritance tax relief. Um, it's just a... You know, it's a law or whatever, a regulation. So that's why there are none in the portfolio. Basically, is they don't they don't qualify. If they were um, going to change that law, would you be tempted to put some in your poor mother's portfolio? Well, first of all, my mother is delighted by the way the portfolio is, <laughs> and it is performing very well. I'd have you know. Even it is. I can see that. I I don't even know what half the stocks do, but um, that's probably just told me how the best way to invest is. Know nothing about what you're doing. Um, so has it worked out for Neil Woodford? Well, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'm better than Neil Woodford. Who knows? <laughs> it's a low bar, it's a low threshold, but I'll give you your portfolio has done an awful lot better than Neil Woodford. It has done very well. For an inheritance tax portfolio, your aim is not to lose money. Um, the fact that we're making money is a, is a bonus. So, you know, would I put resource stocks in? If I thought they were resource stocks that were safe because they're in production, paying off a big uh, dividend and that sort of thing. Yeah, I would consider it. So for instance, as an example, I have looked at Central Asia Metals because I think that's a company that's well run, it's got production, it pays a big dividend. Unfortunately, I don't think it qualifies for IHT. Now, just on IHT, I hear what you say about, you know, not approving of IHT portfolios particularly, but I mean, personally, I think inheritance tax is a terrible tax because it's basically double taxation. They, they take your money, they tax it and let you have what's left. Then they say, and if you're going to pass it on, we're going to tax you again. And I get fed up with this tax, tax, tax. So I actually think that uh, IHT portfolios are quite a sensible thing. I, I, well, on a philosophical level, I agree with you about the uh, 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 wickedness of inheritance tax. I would scrap it altogether. Uh, but if whilst we've got it, I can understand why people use AIM stocks, but I can't see that there's any 
compelling economic logic for having uh, uh, AIM stocks being IHT exempt? No, look, I think the logic is, is to try and stimulate growth by giving tax exemptions into smaller companies. But I, I do accept the way the market has gone. Most of the IHT portfolios are probably in the larger companies that don't need that sort of boost. Yes. Okay, in, in terms of uh, AIM resource stocks, um, it's just a complete, I mean, I know you're, you're broker to quite a lot of them, but it is a complete mugs game, isn't it? Uh, no, it's not a complete mugs game. Look, I don't deny the fact that a lot of them are, shall we say, highly speculative. Um, but there are actually some quite good ones out there. And, and that's obviously what we try and do. We try and work with the good ones because, you know, companies do grow up and be successful. And particularly, you know, if you're looking at in oil, there's a very natural transition from small oil companies that go out, find the resources, build them up, and then they get taken over or they grow into bigger companies. So, uh, and the same can be true in mining. What people forget normally with these junior resource stocks is that they can need quite a lot of money to get them to where they are and it takes a long time it doesn't happen overnight how many um mining stocks have gone from being aim startups to being i, I can think of sentiment as an example to being serious footsie 250 companies or companies of that magnitude well not many have but the reason for that normally is that they actually get taken over because once you once you if you find a really good resource and you start building it up um, a big boy will, will gobble you up. So, for instance, you know, recently we had, it's on the ASX, not on AIM, but MOD um, resources in um, uh, Southern Africa with copper. Um, Metal Tiger had a big stake in it, which is why a lot of people in London know it. Uh, you know, it was clearly going to be very successful, and so it's been taken over. Uh, and that's yeah. what we tend to see is any, any small junior resource stock that's doing well will get taken over. So, shouldn't that tell us that uh, any small junior resource stock? Uh, where the share price is telling you they're not doing terribly well and, and which can't actually give any strong evidence of having a commercial deposit, it is going to be a, automatically a failure? Well, it's clearly going to be a lot harder. And, you know, every investor's got to make up his own mind whether he thinks it's a genuine play or it's perhaps some management teams spinning the wheel. And, you know, look, you know I, and I regularly do comment on a few companies where I think it is pure spin. Um, you know, there are a few out there, but that's for investors to decide. And look, you know, at the end of the day, some investors love playing the casino, and if that's what they want to do, as long as they understand the risks, um, on their head be it. We talk about uh, uh, management who will promote, uh, uh, who are perhaps just spinning and promote. Uh, if a company gets up to a market cap of 250 million plus and has zero institutional shareholders, would you be uh, taking that as a major red flag? Well, I, I think you know the answer to that, Tom, because you know it's something that I preach regularly, and the answer is yes, it is. You know, the, the, I'm not saying that institutions are always right, but if you're getting up, not even up to 250, but if you're up around even 100 million or something like that, if the institutions aren't getting involved, you've got to question what's really going on, because retail money can't build a company to that size. So I, I do regularly... I mean, I look at a lot of factors when I look at stocks. I look at who the shareholders are, I look at who the management are, I look at who the non-execs are, I look at the balance sheet, the cash flow, the asset, and, you know, yes, who the shareholders are is pretty important in truth. You want to know who you're getting into bed with.
And, and whilst you and I may be rude about uh, uh, some fund managers, well, you're not because they're your clients, but I know if you, uh, when you retire, you'll start being rude about fund managers. Uh, uh, generally, fund managers do know a little bit more about resource stocks than people commenting on bulletin boards. Yeah, I mean, I think as a general rule, they do because they have access to a lot more information, they have access, more access probably to the management. Having said that, what you tend to find is that there are some private individuals who are incredibly knowledgeable for whatever reason, uh, who seem to have incredible information. The problem with the bulletin boards is they're completely unregulated and you get a complete mix of good information, total lies, spin, you name it. And I think anybody who invests off the back of a, a bulletin board, frankly, really is just a casino because it is a complete, I mean, I personally, I never read them. I do have people in my office who monitor them for our own corporate clients, but I mean, I find them laughable. I mean, but as I say, some people have incredible knowledge. Some just have no knowledge at all and spin complete rubbish. Okay, three final questions. Uh, one uh, company which you and I both warned about repeatedly as a spinning promote was Sound Energy. Uh, the shares are back now at 10p, but even so, it's capitalised at 100 million quid and it has 20 million of debt. Would you be tempted to buy the shares now or would you stay there? It's almost certainly, um, it, it could be worthless. I, I, I'm not put a valuation on it, but would I buy the shares? No, for the reasons we just talked about. I, you know, I don't like, I don't like the management, the board, the, the shareholders. There's not much there that I like, so I wouldn't be a buyer. And the asset is one that's had two non-commercial fines so far uh, out of two. Uh, yeah, and look, it's. I, I, I've worked with clients in the same area, and it's a very difficult area to make money. Okay, that was one question. Uh, the second one was UK Oil and Gas and Horse Hill. Uh, you gave a presentation at a UK investor show a couple of years ago, uh, which caused a, a, a temporary uh, a, a hiatus in your bromance with David Lenegas. Um, would you be tempted by um, any of the Wheel Basin plays now? Um, well, I have fond memories now because we lost after walking from Horse Hill to Woodlock. <laughs> so my view may have changed. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you, you did an amazing job there. I've got to say, I'm very impressed. What you did was fantastic. Uh, It'd be 34 miles next year, one mile longer. So uh, yeah. I'm giving you the date soon, Andrew. If you remember, as I crossed the line, I said, I'm never doing that again. Um, That's why we changed the route to make uh, so you can do it again. Um, look, I think that at the moment, the UK onshore oil and gas industry is very difficult because we've got a political situation where no decisions can be made. Uh, and look, most of it needs some form of fracking, in truth. Um, and certainly in the wheel basin, fracking is going to be very difficult. All you've got to do is go to Google and it says, you know, an area of natural beauty. Um, they won't let you frack there. If you're going to frack, you probably need to go and frack up north, not because I'm making north-south comment, but, you know, it's where all the coal mines were and everything, and people aren't going to mind it quite It's grim, it's ghastly. Yeah, they eat coal up here, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Um, but that's what you need. And whilst we haven't got a government, they're not, there's not going to be any fracking. Um, so, look, we do act for a company called Egdon Resources. I think it's a great company. It's got some great acreage if shell gas is ever allowed to take place. Uh, but it's also got conventional plays, hasn't it? It's having yeah, that. it's got a little bit of conventional. It could do with a little bit more, in truth. Um, but look, whilst there's no government, it's just so difficult for things to go forward. So at the moment, no, I wouldn't be buying it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a seller. And as soon as we get a government that says, okay, you can frack, some of these stocks are going to absolutely fly. So 
you know, I'm, a I'm sort of a holder because they're all bombed out for eggs But there's no way there's going to be, for, as you say, it's not only an area of outstanding natural beauty, it's also where a whole load of rich stockbrokers live. There's no way they're going to allow fracking there. I think it would be very difficult to frack in the wheelbase, and I'd agree with that. So I would be very wary of anything down there because it's going to be conventional. And if you're dealing in conventional, you're probably doing, you know, two, three hundred barrels a day because that's all you can really do without massive truck movements. Uh, and so you've got a base evaluation of that sort of a flow, and that ain't going to be that high evaluation. OK, final question then. Uh, if you had to put all your money into a, uh, a, a company now, uh, a London-listed company, preferably uh, a resource one, which would it be? <laughs> Possible question. Um, I, actually, I'll tell you my favourite play at the moment, and I'll give you two answers, okay. My favourite play at the moment actually is the Vietnam Enterprise Investment Trust, because I've been to Vietnam and the economy there is growing so fantastically. It's, uh, it's very well run. It's the largest fund manager in the country. And I think anybody who wants to make a sort of five to ten year investment, that is an absolutely brilliant stock. Okay. Uh, the, actually, I'm going to give you three answers. The other area is, I have been putting my money is there are certain stocks out there that have very high yields, um, trading below book values, but they're big enough companies that they will... Um, over a long period of time be successful. So for instance, I bought Standard Life the other day, Standard Life Aberdeen, it's a FTSE 100 company. I think I paid 260p or something, but it was yielding 8.5% and trading below book. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Standard Life. It's a good business. It'll be there in five years' time. So I've been buying stocks like that. I mean, finally, of, of the young resource companies, um, I think, as you know, one of my favorites, um, and I suspect this is what you thought I might say, is Columbus Energy. And again, it's because I really like the management. I think Leo Coote is somebody who can actually really do something with this company. And it's it's had a lot of issues he's had to clear up because it was in a really bad mess when it was the old LGO. Um, but they're going to be drilling in the Southwest Peninsula in the second half this year. And I think the, the chances of success there are much higher than most drilling. And if that comes in, this stock will absolutely fly. Um, they're also going to, as they publicly said, going to enter into a new country. But what's interesting about the entry into the new country is they've also said this doesn't need money. You know, we will be able, we don't have to go and raise money to do this entry. Uh, and so you've got a, a company here that's got quite a few touch points. It's, it's got its own little production coming out of Goudron anyway, which keeps the wheels turning. So the risk reward on this one looks absolutely fantastic because there's really not much downside, and yet the upside as the Southwest comes in. Is huge. So that's my sort of bet for the second half of the year. Okay. Andrew, we'll speak again in a few months. Thank you very much for your time. Have a good day. And you, Tom. Thank you. Well, there you go. I sense that Andrew Monkey is a bit of a dying breed. I'm not suggesting he's really old because he's quite sort of youthful for a, a bit of an older man. Uh, he's a dying breed in that in an increasingly regulated world of broking and corporate advisory work, uh, where every word you say, everything you do is taped and scrutinized by compliance officers, it ends up with people being afraid of their own shadow and not saying what they think. Uh, no one could say that Andrew Monk doesn't say what he thinks. There you have it, Vietnam. And then was I thinking that the only person who was really interested in Vietnam was Gary Glitter. It turns out Andrew Monk is too. 
Now, I had a quick email from a reader who uh, asked me, uh, reader or listeners, my bear cuss over on Share Profits, who asked me, uh, do I think it's a good sign if a company donates gener- uh, generously to uh, charities and the arts and uh, makes a great play of their CSR, Corporate Social Responsibilities, with sections in the annual report and appointing an officer? Well, in short, no. I think it's an incredibly bad sign. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I like it going to the theatre as much as your average uh, upper-middle-class, public school-educated, Oxbridge-educated type. I do support the arts, and I enjoy them, and I, I give money to charities. One, Woodlarks, give your money to. Uh, and, I, and I think charities, many of them do very good work. Uh, obviously, some like Oxfam just uh, uh, provide employment for paedophiles, but many of them do good work. Uh, but I don't believe that it is the role of companies to support them because companies are owned by their shareholders. They should be making profits for those shareholders and then returning those profits to those shareholders. If those shareholders, the ultimate owners of the company, want to make a donation to their local theatre, uh, want to support their local choral society, want to support uh, Oxfam, well, it's very dodgy, we're getting back to Gary Glitter territory here, or want to support a more worthwhile charity, that is their call, that is their money, and that is what, who should be doing it. It is not a company's job to spend money which doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to shareholders on these good causes. Too often, of course, it means that you support a company, supports a theatre. It means that there is a box at the theatre allowing the chief executive, the other directors, the person in charge of corporate social responsibility to have a night out for free, which would otherwise have cost a lot of money. And also you support charities. So you get to go to gala receptions and uh, shake Prince Charles's hand uh, and rub shoulders with uh, minor celebrities from Hollyoaks who you never heard of. Uh, that is uh, something which motivates companies. It's a desire to look good, but it is not their money. It is the money of shareholders. Uh, what I like to see in companies is a company saying, uh, what, it, what I would like to see, but I don't think I will see, because again, people don't dare to do this. But what companies should be doing is saying, we don't give a cent to CSR, we don't have a CSR officer, and this is the only line you're gonna see in the annual report about CSR. Any surplus cash that we generate are returned to shareholders. We hope that they tithe or they give some donation to support the arts and charities, but it's their money, it is not our money. Now, I don't know uh, whether Optibiotics gives any money to charity, I very much hope not. Uh, it is a company which has historically been loss-making, so there is no justification for it giving any money to charity or the arts. I believe it will make a profit this year, uh, and that is why uh, one of the many, many reasons why I am a shareholder. Uh, I'm about to have a discussion with the company's CEO, Steve O'Hara. That's another reason that I'm a shareholder. I have a great deal of faith in Steve. Uh, I should stress and remind listeners, we have not taken payment for this podcast. I only invite on CEOs to share profits radios, uh, CEOs who, who I find quite interesting and whose companies I find interesting. We're not taking payment for it. And that's one of the reasons why I hope you'll agree that I give Steve a pretty hard time.
my third guest today is Steve O'Hara, who is the chief executive of Optibiotics. I stress that uh, the structure of Share Profits radio podcasts are that we do not, like certain people who I may have mentioned once or twice, uh, uh, demand payment for companies to appear uh, on the show. Uh, companies who I invite to ones I'm interested in, they pay nothing. Uh, it's just because I'm interested in them. I should declare that I own rather a large number of shares in Optibiotics. Now, let me start on that point, Steve. Um, it was about a year ago, uh, your shares were £1.30, more than £1.30. Today, I see they're 77. Um, should I be attending the AGM and demanding you get sacked? Um, you could have attended the AGM. You missed it, though. You, it's about a month or so ago. But um, good, good morning, Tom, and thank you very much for investing in Optibiotics. Um, um, I, I think you know we we have had a, a big increase in our in our share price over the, the years. Um, it topped off um, a year or so ago. Um, I think it moved in that time um, from about 64 pence in, in, in June to around about um, £1.34, I think, at its peak um, near the end of August and um, September. Um, and as you know, there's quite a lot of volatility in the, the, the market currently, um, particularly with some of the issues relating to um, the, the UK and the rest of the world in terms of Brexit, the, the wider economic effects in terms of the the, um, trade wars with China and some of the Steve, more... Steve, you know, you're not going to impress me by blaming Brexit. You, <laughs> the share sure. price almost halving. <laughs> I, that Boris Johnson, he's 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 caused my shares in Optibiotics to call by 50%. The wider market, Steve, has uh, is actually up over the past year. Your shares have uh, have come down by quite a lot. Please don't don't blame my friend Boris Johnson for no, this. No, no, it, uh, but the context in you, but. In terms of the um, the stocks, the small caps, they're down. And what I'm trying to put is is the wider context where, where people look more in short term rather than longer term. But you're right. But um, you know, the shares are are down. I'm still confident in terms of what we're delivering for the company. If you look at, I think what you have to look at is both the the wider context, but also the um, what's happened within the company. Um, we're producing um, products, we're signing deals, those deals are starting to generate um, revenues, um, our products are winning awards, our science is winning awards, our products have moved into 30 countries in the last um, two years, so we're making progress. Um, I totally agree with you, I'm disappointed with the share price relative to um, um, the progress of the company, but um, that's what I have to live with. And, um, um, and uh, but I'm still very, very confident and positive for the future. Okay. Um, uh, I do realise that you have to bash Brexit because your chairman, uh, Neil Davidson, is uh, is the uh, living lover of uh, the leading remaining uh, uh, lunatic MP, Anna Subri, and he's a bit of a, a remainer nutter. So I, I realise you're, you're only obeying orders and coming up with that excuse, Steve. I'll let you off for a second, but... Not, um, not at all, but, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's... It's, it's, it's good it's good to um, look at the wider context but I think as a company we we focus more on building the business rather than building the share price if we do the right things um, and in the right order and work with the right partners we'll build a really good business here and as a consequence of that we'll have a strong share price and but you just just got to think of it you know, it, it, you know think of the number of deals we got 44 if only two-thirds of those actually materialize and only two-thirds of those generate revenues of the what I'd expect to be the smallest deal a quarter million pounds then you're looking at a seven 
and a half million pound um, um, revenue for the for the company. So I think you know we've got a good structure in place. We've got some good products and. And um, I'm really looking forward to the future. And like you know, just the last couple of weeks have been absolutely extraordinary in terms of level of interest. So it's looking good. Okay, let's just let's go back to this point. You 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 mentioned you use a number there. You say that your smallest deals could be worth two hundred and fifty thousand in revenues. And I think you said that medium-sized deals could be twice that. And there could be some deals you sign which could be million pound plus in revenues. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. absolutely. You've been signing these deals, the 44 deals. Uh, the first one was signed, what, two or three years ago? Yeah. And uh, your last set of uh, accounts showed half-year revenues of 500,000 quid or whatever. Uh, what makes you think that, you know, that that's somehow going to transform to the bigger numbers? Uh, I'm pretty convinced they will transform to the transform to bigger numbers because I can see the reality of the deals and the partners we're working with. I think what people have to um, recognise is that we're working it in a sort of process here. So we're not selling a, a product um, directly to consumer, we're selling our model is very much a B2B model. So we strike a, a deal with a partner. Let's give an example of the most recent RNS where we, we struck a deal with a, a partner, a large corporate. Um, and uh, that was about a year or so ago. Um, we went, we've been through a process with them. They, they build up their, um, their marketing effort. They go out to, to their various distributors. They, um, they uh, explain a product to them. They set a launch date. Um, they put together their, their team, and we've, um, we've identified a launch now for the, the start of 2020. So that's over a year and a half on from when we, we, we signed the deal. So the larger corporates, typically are quite good to work with in terms of their distribution base and the, the, the size of the revenues that will come from them, which will typically, in, in my experience, be over a million pounds because if it's a billion dollar turnover company, you're not going to mess around with hundreds of thousands, it'll be over a million pounds, but it takes time. So the bigger deals are not now starting to come through. Um, and what's, what we have now, the smaller deals, and it takes a year or two to build up the market because as you strike the deal, people have to go into the, um, the regulatory process within the environment or the packaging for that particular country, etc. So it takes time. Now, if I didn't have those deals, we'd be talking of you know, way down the, down the line, but we're building up the revenues quite, quite nicely within the company, and um, I can see the future. And, Going back to what you said earlier in terms of the 134, I think that was also expedited by a number of investments by um, by our board. So I think last year our board put just under half a million pounds into the company, and that showed the confidence in the company going going forward. Well, yeah, yeah I didn't pick up on that. I mean, we we mentioned earlier that uh, your uh, Euro Loon chairman Neil Davidson, uh, I think he bought shares last year at 97p, uh, 98p even. Uh, if, they, if he was thinking they were a steal at 98p a year ago, why isn't he filling his boots at 77p today? Well, he might do that. I leave that down to personal choice. We've just had a. I think the the key to get across to uh, to investors is that when people joined us, these are two non-executive directors last year, Sean Christie and um, Neil joined us, and very quickly they put money into the company, um, just under half a million between them, 
Um, Fred Narble, who recently joined us, has, um, has uh, just put some, some money in. Uh, so he's only joined us three months or so ago, put money in almost immediately. And I'm sure he you know, he, he will, will follow in the, in the future. So it, it's interesting, and investors should, should look at this. Now, people who join us, they quite quickly see the, see the opportunity. And it's a great... No, it's great and very reassuring to to me because it would be have... more reassuring if Davidson were having spent a year with the company deciding to average down. Pass that on to him when you see him. Um, I, I, I um, wanted to come back to you on the time it takes for deals which uh, you sign to come to fruition. Uh, you signed a deal with, uh, although you never gave the name, everybody knew it was Procter and Gamble. I think that was about three years ago. It's a big company. What, what's happened there? Um, so, one of the issues you have with um, with corporate is you they don't really want you to disclose confidential information, and um, I can't uh, I can't say who, who who it was because we we don't breach confidence, and um, I, I often get. I do. I'm a journalist. Yeah. I, I, I discover things and publish them. Were it hypothetically to have been Procter and Gamble, you did sign a deal with a big corporate three years ago. Why, uh, you know, this is a big company. Why aren't I seeing that on its own, uh, seeing a surge in uh, uh, causing sales to surge? Um, so I was picking up the point in terms of the, I appreciate you, the journalist, you have to ask these questions and probe these, these companies, but it does create a, a great deal of challenge for, for me. And I often get calls from the legal department of these corporates, um, who, um, particularly from, uh, from one corporate, um, over bulletin board correspondence, and it does create difficulties in terms of working uh, with them. So I tend not to talk about the um, um, the, the corporate deals and um, uh, the names because it, it just damages the relationship with them, um, and you can understand why they don't really want to um, have their, their names bandied around within the um, within uh, bulletin boards because they see it as the, the smaller companies, particularly on the stock market, leveraging their brand name to um, promote value for that company. So, I, I can um, accept that, Steve, but okay, my point is three years ago, I think it was three years ago, you announced a deal with a major corporate. Here we are three years down the track and your revenues last year, uh, and the major corporate of the sort that could generate revenues of a million and your total group revenues at the half year stage were half a million. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that reflects where we are in the process of commercialization. And if you go back to some of the presentations I've done over the last year, I've been very clear with the early stage of commercialization. Um, I see the, the future opening up in terms of the opportunity. Um, I see the, the um, revenues growing. Um, it, it takes time. And with corporate, it takes more time than it should. Um, but I always, always remember, you know, I used to work for 3M. Um, we'd often have a meeting in March, the next meeting would not be till September, um, and you know, momentum um, is lost. So I, whilst investors like us to work with larger corporates, um, they are slow and cumbersome in terms of um, how long it takes to take products to market. That doesn't mean to say that those products won't come to market um, and they haven't been tested or being used in in some markets around the uh, around the world under a different brand name. So um, people will test the market and, and it will take time. Um, 
so uh, give, it, give, give these things time. Um, but the, the other point maybe to bring out is that we're not dependent on any particular corporate. You can see the way I've structured the, um, the deals. I've structured them across a broad range of small, medium and, and large companies to give us that, um, that, that opportunity. So the smaller one companies move, move more quickly. The bigger companies give us um, the, um, the breadth of a distribution uh, network and global reach and those, that combination should be delivering um, um, in, the, um, in, in, in the near future. Okay, okay. now uh, after a certain time what I, okay, one thing I don't quite understand about the releases is your continual use of the Adam Reynolds keyboard. In nearly every case, or in some cases, you are not mentioning the name of the company who you've done a deal with. Other cases, you do. Why are you unable to give even a guidance range of likely revenues okay. when you deal? Uh, it's a, a good question, and you've asked a number of times, and the answer has always been been, uh, been, been the same. That I, first of all, I do give a, a, a guidance. It's about a quarter million for the smaller companies, half a million for medium size, and million typically for larger. And you just, you know, um, you're obviously aware of that because you told me about that um, that, that earlier. Um, when we work again, going back to models, a B two B model. So I I have an indication from partners um, of the sort of revenues that they're likely to generate. Now here's the, the risk. Um, if, if I give that revenue projection to the the market, then um, you know, investors make a decision on, on that basis. But that basis is their view of the marketplace, the partner's view of the marketplace. And what can happen with a, a partner? They can change their position quite quickly. They can have a person leave the company. They can change it from a, a view that rather than launching August, they'll launch in December or January. That puts it outside our particular financial year. And the forecast I, I gave um, will not be correct. And it will be unfair on investors because subsequently what happens, and you've seen that in the past with the e EKF, you've seen that in Loop more recently, you get a, a large drop in the, the share price because you have a profit warning. I prefer to be more cautious with investors, tell them this is the opportunity. Typically deals are a quarter million, half a million, a million, depending on the size of the company, and it takes time to build up to those, and this is the process we're, we're going through. Far more transparent. Uh, I know it can be um, frustrating for investors, and it's equally frustrating for, for me, but I, I need to be, um, I need to have a balanced view with investors and not overpromise. Um, so that's what we're trying to achieve. Okay, but let's rewind now then. Uh, you've now got 44 deals, uh, and some of them are profit share, some of them are distribution, some manufacturing, etc. Uh, with those 44 deals, a good number of them are now pretty mature. They've now been uh, over a year since you signed them. You must therefore by now have some visibility of revenues. And if not, when do you think you will have visibility of revenues? So we're starting to get into a really good good position. You can break the, the revenues down into sort of three types, if you, if you like. The first is our revenues from our online sales, which we've got good visibility of. Um, the second are the, um, uh, the sales that we get from 
um, selling products via our formulation partners or the, the profit share that, that, that you mentioned. Um, and the third are the, um, the royalty type. And it's the last one that is more unreliable. Uh, and, and but we're getting to a stage now where that number of our deals are starting to become quite 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 mature and I'm working with a our new um, financial advisor ghost partners to start to put together a, um, a, a forecast for the uh, for the future um, and they they are very well structured and they open up the opportunity not just in the the UK market uh, in terms of the uh, investment opportunity and um, I think the UK broken model is, is is broken but it opens up opportunities within uh, within Europe both with the financial institutions and um, also more importantly with some of the family funds so we should have um, some um, forecasts from them um, and a, um, a research note um, in the um, in the autumn of this year so by the autumn you will be uh, 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 you reckon that you have enough visibility from the deals which you've already signed let alone any which you sign between now and the autumn uh, in order to put revenue uh, and thus profit forecasts out going forward. Yeah, that's what the market's looking for, and that's what we're looking to generate. But as we've discussed before, uh, the key to me is that the revenue forecasts and the profit forecasts that we produce I have to have confidence in 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 delivering. Um, so that's what that because I have to be fair to to investors. So um, that's what we're aiming to uh, to achieve in the the uh, the autumn. There'll be a couple of things that will um will, will impact upon that. And typically, what uh, I've discussed this with you before, some of our deals are quite um, bivalent. So some of the deals with um with retailers, they'll either be worth five, six million, uh, maybe ten million, depending on the size of the retailer, or, or zero. Um, so you just got to be slightly cautious in terms of the forecast. How you? How Sorry, you five to ten million in sales or profits to you? Uh, five to ten million in in, in sales, um, and then what you have to, and then what I was going to then uh, go on to say is that in terms of sense of analysis, you can't exactly say let's take two thirds of that or a, or a third of of um, of, um, of that. You have to build in a, um, you know, it's either five to ten million or it's going to be um, nothing. Um, and just going back in terms of whether that's uh, no, that can be that, that sales and what what profit margin would you make on that? Uh, um, so in terms of the the larger retailers, there's two types of um, of deal that we we have. If you have a a sale of product, okay, your margin is typically around about 30. Um, 40 percent that's our, our gross margin but we'll have to invest in in that opportunity as we go forward to give some some marketing because what they're buying what you're buying effectively is um, shelf space and they'll want you to make sure that shelf space is working the other type of deal is that we incorporate our um, our ingredients so our, our slim biome for example some of other products into their own label products and then the margin is um, is is greater, um, but of course the volume is less. So um, it uh, depends on the type of deal. And what we're working on is um, both those type of deals with a, a range of different retailers. Um, and one of those um, different retailers has um, has, uh, uh, has um, requested us to become um, a part of their um, become a supplier. So you you don't have an agreement with uh, with them as such. You become a, a supplier. Um, for launch at the um, start of 2020, so that looks pretty pretty good. Um, there'll be a, a number. Of are they are they sort of big name retailers, the sort of people I'd have heard of? But yeah, they're big name retailers. Even in North North Wales, I would have heard of them. 
Uh, I'm not sure you hear them in North. No, of course you'll hear them in North Wales. Uh, they're, they're a UK branded um, um, retailer. But just to go back to that, the the, the guys, um, the investors, they they look for a, a UK branded retailer, and that is good in, in in terms of it gives us recognition within the UK and it gives us our product some credibility. But that's not the that's not the deal that will bring the, the profit in. The the deals that bring the profit in because you have higher margins are the type of deal that will produce it in terms of the profit share, where you know, we end up with 40% um, um, margin on on, uh, on on and plus on on that. Some of our royalty bearing deals have, you know, it's 100% profit essentially because um, we've got no um, no cost of goods because they're just selling and, and we've got no sales activity on on that other initial support. So we're trying to get that mix between the various um, deal types to to take into account. First of all, the, the revenues that people look to, which are important, but more important to me is the profit on that particular revenues. And it's a balance between revenue, profit, and also awareness. But some of our deals we, we've done are, uh, 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 and supermarket deals are a part of this, they increase the awareness of the um, um, of the brand, of you know, LPLDL, Austin Biome, and that in, in itself, Creates um, greater um, value for the for the company in terms of brand recognition, um, and, um, and allows them to do even better deals if you go forward. Let's be clear, and these these deals with uh, supermarkets, with if they happen, it could be three or four million quid in profit potentially, uh-huh. but equally may not happen at all. Yeah, uh, all will be revealed within the next few months. Uh, I'll keep people informed as and when I, I can, but you're right to point out, and I made a point earlier, these deals are bivalent, even though you got the group the supermarket, you have to go to sustainability audits, ethical audits, supplier audits, it's a it's a long old um, process you have to go through. There's, there's no guarantees those um, those agreements will will come to fruition, but we're we're pretty confident in terms of the way we structured our business that our manufacturers are all um, accredited and ready supply supermarkets, so we should be comfortable on those audits. But um, again, you're very right to point out there's no guarantees for this. Okay, let's assume that they don't happen. Um, what you are on record as saying that you believe that within uh, this was last. About a year ago, you said within three years we could be doing profits of seven to ten million. Is that excluding supermarkets? Would supermarkets be on bonus on top? Yeah, I think at the time I, I said that. You, you know, you have to work on what you have in in front of you. Uh, a supermarket deal or some of the bigger deals with the the larger corporate. So, I indicated in the last release that we're working on our sweet parties with a a very large um, beverage um, corporate, one of the largest in the in the world. That, that excludes those type of um, of deals. Um, uh, and you have to exclude them because, as I said earlier, they, they are bivalent, they either happen or, or not. So you can't count those in your in, in your in your forecast. Okay, so no, this, the getting back to the seven to ten million of profit, uh, uh, your fixed costs are. Am I right in saying that because you always, whenever you announce your results, there are always one-offs and things which I'm too stupid to understand and. Uh, I leave to the experts on the uh, LSE bulletin board to explain to me. 
Um, but your underlying core operating uh, fixed costs are about a million quid, right? Yeah, yeah. A million quid a year. Yeah. Uh, and the margins you're going to earn on your products, uh, it depends on the nature of the deal, doesn't it? It, it does. It, so, so our online margins are around about eighty odd percent. Um, our royalties, obviously, they they, they are they come with no no costs. Um, when we have our um, our products that are sold from a, a formulator, um, then we're making less margin around between forty and sixty percent. So, um, so and what you're finding as you go forward. Which I, I think the path you're following is, is as we go forward, our investment and our two, well, our three major costs are, are um, IP um, and people and R&D. What you'll find is our IP costs will, will reduce um, because, well, our patents will be will be granted in support costs then rather than translation costs as we go to a bit different countries. Our R&D costs will, will, will reduce from other products that we'll, we'll be developing. Um, our uh, human resource costs, our people costs, will probably in, increase, as you've seen. I've brought a different type of person um, over the last um, um, six months or so. So Dr. Fred Noble and Steve Prescott, they are now, they are VPs for, for, for big for big corporates, um, so that they bring a an extensive um, uh, range of contacts, credibility in the industry, and you can see immediately that Fred's created opportunities for us in terms of uh, deals with Agripa and, and others. So uh, our costs will, will will go down overall, although as a portion our HR will go up, our R&D and our IP will, will go down. And our, our revenue should be increasing, and we should be in a, a good position in terms of profitability. Okay, so just to recap, overall, the fixed corporate costs should stay should, should stay and give or take a million yeah, 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 And your blended margin will be somewhere between. Uh, depends on the product mix, yeah. uh, uh, it, but it could be 80, 90 percent. It could be a bit lower if there's a lot more 40 percent deals coming in. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Now, um, so, so in terms of reaching profitability, that would indicate to me that if you could get sales up to 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 million in the current year, you would be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so our, our income is not distributed evenly over the, over the year. So the last part of, of, of the last year, so um, October, November, um, um, so September, October, November, we were bringing in over 100K per, um, per, 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 per month. So we were covering our, our, um, our costs on a monthly basis. Um, at the at the start of the year, we weren't covering our particular costs. And what I have to work it up on is making sure our income is more evenly distributed over the year. Currently, it's, it, we get more in the second half of the, the year than we do in the, the first half of the year. And you saw last year's results. Now, we had a, a, a five to six times increase in, in income in the second half of the year as is in the, the, the first half, half of the year. And that's because the way the, the deals are structured. So we get more of our our royalty payments come in in the second half of the year and the odd milestone payment than we do in the, the, um, the first half of the year. Are you confident that you will achieve profitability or better in the current year? Yeah, we should. You know, I can never say um, uh, for, for certain, but um, that's what we're looking to uh, to achieve. Uh, and things are, where we're going currently, we should achieve that in the, um, in, in the year ahead. So um, we should be around about a million pounds by the end of the year. What, of sales or profit? Um, of sales. 
So you should be break even or a little bit better for the current year. Going forward, do you stand by that forecast that even without a supermarket win, you could do seven to 10 million profit? Yeah, absolutely. We're building up a, a business here. There's lots of things going on. And as I said earlier, you know, it's no point doing these, these deals unless they create revenues for, for you. And, and I just gave the example earlier on of if we get a quarter million pound per, per deal, and we're not looking for um, uh, for that. We're looking for you know, half a million or a million for, for some of those deals. So we get, um, you know, that's on the basis of my calculation, that a third of these deals won't work out. Um, so um, we've got a we've got a great opportunity. You know, you can never predict the future because things go uh, things go wrong. But if we continue getting more things right than wrong, um, no, we'll have a very very valuable business going forward. Okay, two final questions, and I'll let you go. The first one is: uh, uh, even if you were to miss slightly on those forecasts, uh, there is no need for the company to raise additional equity, is it? You've got a pretty good cash balance. Uh, yeah, we've got a pretty good cash balance. Um, uh, these are my indications to you what, are what we believe will, will, will happen. I don't want the regulator to be defined it as a, as a forecast. We'll put, as I said earlier, forecast in, the, um, uh, in, in our research note um, based on a detailed analysis of the revenues from each of those, um, each of those, those companies. But I'm confident going forward. And, um, uh, I, uh, if we if we get one or two other things right, there will be um, will be more than that. So um, it looks like a good opportunity for us. And finally, you've um, you've hired these people, goat partners. Um, uh, they're European. Do, is anyone going to try and speak to UK institutions? I know you still got FinCap on board, but uh, I'm, they're useless. I don't expect you to confirm that. But uh, I could say that you couldn't possibly comment. Is anyone um, still going to speak to UK institutions? Is, is there institutional demand out there? Um, so I speak to UK institutions and uh, family trusts and individuals, high net worth individuals, on a, on a regular basis. Um, the, as I touched on earlier, I think the, the broker market in the UK is is not great. I think the, the market, well, I mentioned Brexit again, hasn't um, hasn't and Woodford hasn't really really helped. Um, so, but I have to play the cards in, in front of me, and, and so given the UK it is not particularly lucrative market, even though we're speaking to to them. Um, uh, I have to go outside the UK, so we have meetings set up in in Germany, in the Netherlands, uh, across uh, across um, parts of France, so those highly concentrated within Paris, um, another parts of Europe um, throughout August and, and September. And this is about engaging in with those companies um, outside the UK, you know, reflecting some of the uncertainty and continued uncertainty in the UK market. So that's what we're looking to do and bring in. Uh, a few more institutions to, to reduce that volatility in, a, in our share price that we touched on earlier. Of course, the UK is the, the strongest economy within the European Union, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that to, uh, despite Brexit, you can point that out to your chairman <laughs> when you uh, speak to him next and tell him to buy some shares. Steve, thank you very much for your time. Uh, well, there's so much more we could cover. I guess we're going to have to do another one of these in a few months' time. I'll that, speak to you then. That would be brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom. Take care. That was a fair enough interview with Steve O'Hara. I think I gave him a fairly hard time, don't you? Notwithstanding the fact that I am a loyal, supportive, and actually pretty encouraged shareholder after that. I hope you've enjoyed this first very, very long edition of Share Profits Radio. Are you still awake at the back? 
Uh, I'll be back next week with a shorter one-hour podcast. I hope to have a CEO on, and I will hope to have uh, another guest. I hope to give you a few more of my thoughts. If you've enjoyed this content, it is a bit like the content which you get on Share Profits. I do do a daily podcast, uh, a daily bearcast. I don't hold back in my views there. There's groundbreaking stuff. We break stories in bearcasts. We break stories on Share Profits. Uh, we expose frauds. We expose accounting wrongdoing. We expose overpromotes. If you want more of that, it's very simple. Just go and join the site today. It costs five ninety nine. A month, which, including that, which, as I say, is less than the cost of a large glass of red wine in most London restaurants. So sign up and enjoy Bearcast every day. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'll be back roughly the same time with another edition of Share Profits Radio next week. Speak to you then. Man of can't you see the spear points gleaming? See the warrior feathers streaming to this battlefield. Men of harvest and descending, it cannot be ever steadying. Yeah.